The Tentative Apologist Podcast. Time to think. It's hard to believe, but it has been four and a half years since the Tentative Apologist Podcast was launched in May 2013. Since then, a lot of water has flowed under that bridge. Now for this, our 100th episode, I invite my first guest, Dr. Dennis Lamroux, back to continue our conversation on evolution, the Bible, and Christian faith. You can listen to the first episode still on the website through a link, which I've included in the show notes. Dr. Lamroux is Associate Professor of Science and Religion at St. Joseph's College at the University of Alberta. He is the author of many academic journal articles, as well as several books, including Evolutionary Creation, A Christian Approach to Evolution, and I Love Jesus and I Accept Evolution. In this episode, our conversation is guided by Dr. Dennis Lamroux's latest book, Evolution, Scripture and Nature Say Yes, and that's published by Zondervan. And here's the really good news. In celebration of our 100th episode, Dr. Lamroux has kindly donated three autographed copies of his new book. If you live in North America, you are eligible to win a copy. All you need to do is email me you can contact me through my website, or you can tweet me at Randall Rouser by November 30th. We will have a drawing to identify the three winners on December 1st. And while we can't give everyone a free book, we do have something just as good, a free course. You see, Dr. Dennis Lamroux is currently offering a MOOC, that is, a massive open online course through the University of Alberta. The course, Science and Religion 101, is free and open to all who are interested. So follow the link that I've included on the show notes on the website and register online for the course. And now, without further ado, let's turn to our conversation. Dennis, uh, thanks for joining us for the 100th podcast here. This is a very... uh, austere and impressive occasion and i'm sure you can now add this on your cv to your long list of accolades to have been on the 100th podcast so let's uh begin by hearing something of your story because for many people when they come to the question of origins it's been a very personal journey for them and that's certainly the case with you so let's start off hearing take us back 40 50 years and then a brief overview of of how you got to where you are now well, terrific, and thanks for this opportunity. Uh, it's, it's quite a privilege and a pleasure. And, and you're absolutely right, and you use the number 4050. I've been struggling with this issue of origins for a good portion of my life. Um, like many people, you know, I'm raised um, in, a, in a school system. I went to a Christian school system, a Catholic school. Um, I remember in grade 11 that my biology teacher said, you don't have to think that evolution undermines your faith, you can see it as God's way of creating. And I would say that's true, but if that's all you say to a young person, they're really not going to be able to be equipped to meet the challenges of a secular education in a public university. And that's when I started back in 72, my first year of biology. Our very first biology course was evolutionary biology. And by Christmas time, I was done with religion and Christianity in particular. Um, I was trapped in 
a dichotomy like most people. And what I mean by a dichotomy is the idea that there's only two positions. There's either atheistic evolution or there's creation in six days. Those were the two options that seemed to be in my mind. And you're saying within three months of university, your education at the University of Alberta managed to undo the formation of your Christian household and your Catholic schooling for the previous 18 or whatever years. No one has ever said it that clearly as you have just said it. And it, um, you're hitting me really hard. You're absolutely right. It took just three months of that first semester. And I sort of come back to as much as I loved my biology teacher, um, and he, was, he stated a, a truism that God could be seen as leading the evolutionary process. I was done, and so my parents got wind of this. I remember the, wasn't a conversation, it was more of an argument. I remember pounding on the kitchen table saying, Mom, Dad, the Bible is a fairy tale. You know, the world did not get created in six days, but the world got created through evolution. My parents did not have the privilege of a college education and couldn't respond to me. Uh, the other piece of the personal puzzle is I was the first kid in the whole Lamroot clan to go to university and therefore there wasn't a cousin or uncle or an aunt that could help me out on this. So you got it, Randall, spot on. It took just six months to deconstruct me completely. By the end of my first year of university, I wrote in my diary that I think everything is the result of DNA and, and, and biological evolution. But there's sort of a but to this diary entry when I sort of referred to that is I still thought there was some sort of nebulous, maybe divine being out there, some sort of ultimate purpose. So I did not go completely all the way to an evolutionary atheistic position. Nevertheless, I continued at the University of Alberta, went on to dental school, and between my third and fourth year of dental school, um, back to my diary where it makes it very clear in the record, that I become a complete atheistic evolutionist. Uh, I record that love is basically nothing but a herd response. There's nothing mystical or real. We're nothing but animals in heat. And of course, when you've got a young man, when his hormones are sort of running through his body, you can imagine, you know, how I behaved. I'm not proud of that. But, uh, you know, I, I, I misbehaved badly. So what your view is with regards to origins many times will play out in terms of how you live your life. So finished dental school, military paid my way through dental school, and despite the fact that here I was as a flaming evolutionist living a life of self-centeredness, you know, the party life, the only thing that I cared about was playing golf, I had a posting to Nicosia, Cyprus, which was a military posting with the United Nations peacekeepers. And it was there my faith was rekindled. There were no dramatic events in my life. I just simply started reading the Bible and I started reading the Gospel of John and returned to faith, born again. And what could I describe the experience? Just simply the power of the Word of God was striking chords deep in my heart and in many ways I've been yearning and longing for this. I was 25 years of age. It's one thing 
that when I looked at that party lifestyle I was living, I saw the vanity in it. I saw the emptiness. I mean, how many girls can I run after? How many bottles of rum can I drink? How much pot can I smoke? How many golf balls can I hit? How many fast cars can I buy and drive? I, you know, these are all things the culture was telling me that would make me happy. You know, there was sort of a superficial happiness, but deep, deep, deep in my soul, there was a deep emptiness. And the Germans have this wonderful word, it's called angst. And there was just this uneasiness in my soul. And so, Gospel of John, you know. Now, I didn't know we should start reading the Gospel of John. I sort of see this as God's providence. It's God's grace. It's an answer to my Christian mother's prayers. And, you know, often you hear people, adults, converting, coming to Christ by reading the Gospel of John. And it has this great, great message that God is love. God loves us so much that God would die for us. And that changed my life. So there's sort of a little irony that the peacekeeper met the Prince of Peace in the midst of the six-month tour. Well, okay, I've come back to Canada. Remember this issue of a dichotomy. There's only two positions. I get led to an evangelical church, a really great evangelical church, and this is sort of in 1980, and we know what most evangelicals are around that time. They're all young earth creationists. Now, remember, I lost my faith because of evolution. I'm still strapped in the dichotomy the way most people in my church are, but now they're telling me that we can prove that the earth is 6,000 years old and we can prove scientifically that God created in six days. Now, to hear that message, remember, evolution destroyed my faith, to all of a sudden have people of faith telling me we can prove this scientifically and I've got a science background, I hook fully on to this, this approach to things, and I become a young earth creationist. So what you're seeing is that back and forth, not realizing there's some middle ground positions. Um, in fact, my first publication is actually in a young earth creationist journal, and I'm very proud of it. I basically, you know, was singing the praises of how young earth creation can bring the world back to a more normal state. Came to the end of my military commitment, had a lot of different options that were offered to me, but eventually I came to the belief that the Lord was calling me to be a creation scientist with the intention of attacking evolutionists in public universities. Remember, I lost my faith in a public university because of evolutionists. Now I'm going to go back and attack them and protect students from these individuals. Right from the beginning, there was always this dream of doing two PhDs, one in theology to be equipped in those early chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 to 11, then a PhD in, uh, in, in, in biology, but with the intention of destroying evolutionary biology. Well, I went to a school called Regent College in Vancouver, BC, in Canada. During the 80s, they called it the Golden Age. We had J.I. Packer, Bruce Waltke, Gordon Fee, Michael Green. It was a who's who of the evangelical. No, Clark had already left, left. But, you know, we read Clark's stuff. Um, and it was a wonderful, wonderful time. And I don't mind admitting I had that typical science arrogance that only science students were the pure thinkers at university and people in the humanities just weren't all that clever. Well, was Dennis in for a great education of changing my attitude? And it was during those three years at Regent College that there was a complete renovation in terms of how I read the scriptures. Now, the thing to note, as I read the scriptures, I mean, I was still getting the central message of the faith of who God was. 
But I was starting to discover that there was an ancient understanding of nature in the Bible. And to give you a classic example, in Philippians 2, this famous passage, the Canodic Hymn, talking about Jesus, where Jesus takes on human flesh, where God pours himself out to become a human in Jesus. And there's this verse 10, it says, the name of the Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee bow that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven, on earth. Our English translations have under the earth, but the actual Greek is in the underworld. And so what we saw here in Paul is the three-tier universe. And of course, this made me very uncomfortable when I first saw it. But my professors at Regent were saying, the first thing we have to do to do theology is we have to submit to the very words in the Word of God. Now, sometimes those will make you uncomfortable, but it doesn't matter. We still have to submit. And so what Regent did to me is made me realize that there was an ancient understanding of nature, not a modern understanding of nature, a modern science. And so when the Holy Spirit inspired the biblical writers, he used their categories or their scientific ideas like the three-tier universe as a vessel to get across inerrant, and I'm going to repeat that word, inerrant, absolutely true spiritual truths. And so that was the first step of the way in terms of um, reading the scriptures, and I was so grateful. So what I'm about to say, I don't intend to be insulting to young earth creationists, but I left young earth creationism for biblical reasons. The Bible is not a book of science, and it doesn't offer modern scientific ideas, but if we look carefully at it, scripture, we'll see there's an ancient science. I moved on to do my PhD in theology, where I studied the first generation of evangelicals after Darwin, and this was another eye-opening, shocking moment for me, that these wonderful Christians had no trouble with evolution so long as it was seen as God's process. And one of the great analogies to help Christians sort of understand this is think about when you were being created in your mother's womb. I've yet to meet a Christian say to me that then when they were being created in their mother's womb, the Lord came out of heaven, grabbed an arm and attached it to their body or grabbed a leg and attached to their body. Instead, most of us believe that God created us through natural processes, developmental and embryological processes. As Psalm 139 says so beautifully that God knit us together to be fearfully and wonderfully made in our mother's womb. So, so I want to pause on that <clears throat> just sure. for a minute. Absolutely. I think a lot of young earth creationists, I mean, I, they're, they're, and more, many Christians are just not aware of what you're talking about. That it, <clears throat> in the decades after Darwin, uh, you know, there's there's been the story of the famous fight in 1860, the debate between Huxley and Wilberforce. <clears throat> and this fits into the science versus religion model, the warfare model, what people don't realize is is folks like Asa Gray, James Orr, B.B. Warfield, conservative evangelical Christians at the time, they didn't have a problem with evolution. And really, it wasn't until the fundamentalist controversies in the 1920s that we sort of are given the rigid categories that have defined the debate and, the, and that framed it for so many evangelicals for decades. Your, your history is absolutely correct. And uh, for your listeners, if there's one book, and it's a short book, it's only 180 pages, is by David N. Livingston from Belfast. And here's the title of his book, Darwin's Forgotten Defenders. And so you're absolutely right 
that we in this generation, say the late 20th century, we view the origins debate in light of the reaction out of this fundamentalist movement of the 1920s. But if we go a little further back, and this is, again, one of those eye-opening eye moments that shocked me going, like, how come no one ever didn't tell me about this? I mean, and, you know, I, and, and that was what my thesis was on, was working on this story of the evangelicals. And as I'm reading their diaries and their letters, I mean, these are as devout evangelical Christians as you ever find. You know, this is the Princetonians. They're absolutely fabulous. And so it's a, it's a story we're missing, but at the same time, people like uh, Livingston have, uh, and James Moore have brought this forward to us. And so I, I started seeing this. Now, I didn't become an evolutionist at that point, but what it did do to me was... Should I ever accept evolution, I will not have to lose a step of my faith in walking with the Lord um, because I could simply see, and that's that analogy back to the womb, and I really think it's one of the most effective analogies, and ironically, deliciously, the first time I read it, it's in Darwin's Origin of Species, which, by the way, Darwin in the Origin of Species was not an atheist. He says he was a theist. He was not a Christian, but believed in a personal God, and he also said he believed in intelligent design, and towards the end of the Origin of Species... He talks about this analogy with the womb. So, you know, if you have no trouble with God creating you and your mother's womb through natural processes, well, why can't there be another set of natural processes whereby the Lord used evolutionary processes to create all living organisms? So anyway, I left um, Wycliffe College, University of St. Michael's College, finished my PhD in 91. <clears throat> and this becomes a moment of, you know, God calls and follows. I mean, I could have got a job at that point, but... While I'm on my knees, the Lord's saying to Two me... Two doctorates at this point. I'm yeah, just you know, I would not suggest it to anyone. Um, but but it's, it's, it's part of my own spiritual growth. This is God call. I absolutely believe this is the case. And the Lord basically said, look, you want to get into this origins debate? How much science do you know? And Lord, the answer is, I'm a dentist. I can fix people's teeth, but I'm not an evolutionary scientist. But with that, having that background, I could end up in a Ph.D., in the evolution of teeth and jaws, some of the very best evolutionary evidence. Now, when I walked into that program in 91, I was still a pretty ravenous anti-evolutionist. And there really is a whole generation of my generation of guys going with the thought, we're going to go to public universities to get the best public university degree, and then we're going to walk out and attack evolution. I was part of that group, and that was my original plan. At the same time, I was open to the possibility that if evolution's true, this wouldn't phase my faith. So anyway, sort of like it reached, and it took three years for me to see this, three years of seeing the evidence day in and day out, and of course, in my Sunday schools and my churches, people are saying there are no transitional forms, or in other words, in-between forms in the fossil record. Well, this is simply not true at all. I mean, that was the shocking thing for me. I tried to put together anti-evolutionary model, but after three years of seeing this data day in and day out, I put my hands up in the air and said, man, the evidence for evolution is there. You often hear biologists talking about the overwhelming evidence for evolution. And of course, you have to study that specially biology, evolutionary biology and paleontology. I have that very same experience. Now, with that being said, did I lose a step of faith? Not whatsoever, because I was prepared, if you wish, theologically and biblically, realizing the Bible's not a book of science, so there's no conflict. 
and at the same time seeing evolution as God's process on how he creates the world. So that was 1994, finished school in 97, started teaching at a Catholic college in the University of Alberta, St. Joseph's College. And for the last 20 years, I've been teaching science and religion and helping undergraduates and particularly evangelicals wrestling with this evolution thing and showing a variety of different approaches on how you can certainly be a religious person and at the same time absolutely love science, including evolutionary science. And at the same time, you know, I also have the opportunity to keep my, my, my science going on. This year, I'll be publishing three scientific papers, two in paleontology, one in developmental biology. So it's been an absolutely brilliant place for me to do theology and also continue to do a little science. Excellent introduction, and thank you for sharing that story. Thank you. Uh, so let I want to talk a little bit about the, the, the evidence that you're talking about, and maybe start with this, that there is this view that is still all too common when, when people, lay people, Christian lay people in particular, hear the word theory yep. uh, appended to, to, to evolution. They think of theory in, in the this popular sense of something that is less than fact. It's theoretical, that it's still not yet established as fact, which is fundamentally different from the proper use of the concept theory as an explanatory framework for facts. Yes. So with this understanding, um, can you talk about some of these lines of evidence a little bit more? And I'd especially like to hear something about dental evolution. Now, we're at a, a somewhat of a disadvantage because we don't have the visuals here, yes, yeah. which are so helpful in seeing the <clears throat> developmental sequences that you will talk about. But if there's something you could just share about some of the diverse lines of evidence that are explained in a, in a very illuminating way through science, through evolutionary theory. Well, um, and you're spot on. It'd be great to have some images. Um, your understanding of the term theory is absolutely spot on. Uh, a theory, and sometimes you'll see in anti-evolutionary circles, they'll put theory with quotation marks as if to say it's, it's flaky, it's not very strong. When it comes to evolutionary theory, and this is a survey just last year, 98% of scientists in the United States believe that life evolved. When you get a consensus that high, it's almost like saying evolution is a fact. Now, of course, we could debate on how the word fact is being used, but let me tell you my experience of being an evolutionist now for about 25 years and why it, it, it makes so much sense to me is every time a new fossil is found, it always fits perfectly in the place where we predict it to be. Um, I mean, that is, when you think of how many fossils are found every year, tens of thousands are being cataloged, and they're always fitting perfectly. Now, some people might say, well, that's the conspiracy of the, of the scientific community. It's not a conspiracy. Believe you me, if someone could find a fossil to uproot some sort of theory, they would love that because that would be to the advantage of your career. But here's the bottom line. Things always fit in the right place. When it comes to the fossil record, and let's try to draw a bit of a picture, and I'll use the vertebrates because they're so much easier. If we go to the fossil record, the first fish that appear are fish without mouths. 
they sort of have a vacuum suction that they're sort of drawing things up. That's very clear in the fossil record. About five, and I'll give you some real general numbers around 500 million years ago. Then around 400 million years ago, then we have our first jawed fish. And of course, I'm pretty, pretty closely connected to this because I work in that area. So these are the first jaws uh, without any teeth. And then after that, following up on the fossil record, and these are the Gaycanthodians where I've worked on in the area, then we see our first teeth. Now, in 1874, there was a guy named Otsker uh, Hertwig um, who made the observation that when it came to these early fish, they had scales on the outside that when they opened up these scales and looked at them under a microscope, they looked a lot like teeth. They had a pulp canal with nerves, they had a base like a root, and they had dentin. And of course, everyone knows dentin is when you, wa when you wipe away the enamel by brushing too hard on your teeth, you get to that next layer with all those little nerve fibers and you'll see these desensitization uh, uh, toothpaste. Uh, it's the very same dentin we have in our mouth. So Hertwig made the comment that, you know, where did teeth come from? These are scales that invaded into the mouth. So he makes the theory way back in 1874. Since 1874, we've been looking for this invasion, and we haven't found it. And here then becomes, you know, when it comes to scientific research. And as Christians, we can make a decision. Well, we've got two theories. Maybe the data is there, but we haven't found it. Or maybe there is no data that God intervened and in these toothless fish actually with a divine miracle put together these teeth. And you know we've been waiting for over 150 years so how much patience should we have? God of the gaps. Thank you. It's exactly the God of the gaps. Now I'm not opposed to it. It's just that historically there's a track record Every time a religious person has talked about God intervening, the gap is not a gap in nature, but a gap uh, in our knowledge, and it gets filled. So let's go to 2013. And of course, this gets very personal. The chair of biology, I work in his laboratory, phoned me up one day and says, we need you to be an examiner for this PhD. Um, on, on fish and teeth, and I said, his name is Mike Calls. I ain't got time. And he phoned me again, and then a bunch of emails, you gotta do this, and I go, Mike, I ain't got time, I ain't got time. Finally, he sent the thesis over to me. I looked at the thesis, I just about passed out. Because this young woman, Stephanie Blair, did her entire PhD and discovered the transition from scales into mm -hmm. teeth. And I stop my life for six weeks, and for six weeks I'm in the lab, 10 hours a day, going through all our fossils under a microscope. And I will tell you, I'm going to speak, it's one of the most blessed experiences in my life. And let me describe one of these fossils. It is an acanthodian, so this is an early fish with no teeth. And we know it hasn't got any teeth because we have a little CAT scan machine where you can put the fossil through and to see if there's any teeth, say, deeper in the fossil and there's nothing there. Here's the interesting thing. As the scales, and you'll have to picture this, the scales are sort of like little buds with little blades. 
as these scales get closer to the mouth, both in the upper jaw and the lower jaw, these little buds get larger and larger and larger. And they're sort of like little cleats that athletes have on their feet. So you can appreciate that as these buds get larger and larger near the mouth on these scales, there would be some extra traction to be able to catch other fish. So it has a selected advantage. We'll move on to the next fish, next acanthodian from the period, and it's absolutely stunning. We now have teeth in the mouth, and they're little buds with blades, and they're much larger, and you can see that this is definitely scales invading the mouth. The thing that is stunning about that specimen is if you go inside the mouth, in other words, on the tongue side, and go down the side, you're going to see scales way down there. Mm -hmm. And the question becomes, how did those scales get there? Well, the scales went from the outside, they invaded inside, and when it comes to the crest of the jaw, those scales got larger and turned into, into teeth. And that is a very easy evolutionary mechanism to increase things in, in size. And there's more to this. Here's another fish that she found, Stephanie Blair. And th this is the one that is absolutely stunning. So when it comes to scales, you have a bony base. And we have a series of scales where on the outside of the mouth, you have a nice flat surface and typical of the scales on the rest of the outside of the mouth. But on this same bony base, as the bony base goes into the mouth, you have a bunch of little prickly teeth that emerged. And so you can see this little prickly series of teeth on that very same scale. And again, this is a really easy developmental mechanism to change this. Classic example of the origin of teeth. So instead of a god of the gap, our gap was a gap of knowledge. And it's thanks to these people, this was actually up from the Northwest Territories, um, that they found these fossils, they described them, and we no longer have a gap uh, needing the intervention of the God of the Gaps. We have this gap closed because we now have solid evidence that scales invaded the mouth, and that's where teeth come from. So... Uh I'm, I'm wrestling with, with the existential challenge of my inner fish. Ah. And uh, let's tie this then into anthropology. Uh, and in particular, what does this say about a concept like the image of God? If we are, if fish are our cousins, uh, if I remember Larry Norman, I don't know if you know the Christian singer, rock and roll the guy. rock and roll Lots guy. Lots of his CDs, he's great. So he, he is great, he, well he was great, may he rest in peace. He also had a line in one of his songs, ain't gonna let an evolutionist make a monkey out of me, which I'm sure you've heard that line before. What? How do we understand human nature, human distinction, the image of God, some of these concepts yep. in light of a shared evolutionary history. And that's fair enough. I mean, there's the concern. So fish evolved into reptiles, reptiles into mammals, and of course we're the latest people on the scene as humans. Um, we're related to all other living organisms. If you ask for more of the evidence, I mean, where the really amazing evidence is the evolutionary genetics. And we all know about DNA. Think about your family. Uh, the genes in your family are much closer to you and your siblings and your children, they say, than the genes in my family. I mean, we know this sort of stuff. 
And so when it comes from an evolutionary perspective, we can see which creatures are more similar. And I think most people are aware that chimpanzees are basically identical to us, about 99% the same genes. But, and here's the but, are we nothing but glorified chimps? And my answer is absolutely not. We are radically different from chimpanzees. Um, I think what's really great about the Lord allowing a creature to evolve that's almost identical to us, and I'm going to use Paul's language, identical in the flesh, in other words, physically, but look at a chimpanzee and compare them to us. There is no comparison. I guarantee that there's no place in any jungle that someone is doing an interview on the topic of origins between chimpanzees. We are radically, radically different from chimpanzees. It's not our physicality per se. It's because of the spiritual reality that God, by his grace, gave us the image of God. Now, one of the things, and I only picked this up in the last five or so years, is think about Genesis 1, that amazing creation account. Here's God delighting in creating all these things, calling things good, calling the whole creation very good. And he comes to this one creature to create a man, to, to create men and women in his likeness and his image. And this is kind of subtle, but if all of a sudden you think about it, here is God creating throughout this entire chapter, and then he makes a creature that's in his likeness and his image. What does that mean? Does that mean possibly that he creates a creator that would have amazing creative impulses more than any other creature? I think that's exactly what it's saying. So, the fact that we have this amazing creative impulse, I think, is a gift from God, and we have it way more than any other creature. No other creature has been called creating the image of God. And so I think the manifestation of all this creative impulse seen in our discoveries, our universities, and everywhere in human culture, I think this reflects our radicality being different from the rest of the creation. Now, that's not to disrespect chimpanzees or dolphins or anything like that, but there is a radical difference. And I'll give you an example. A Nobel Prize winning chimpanzee is a chimpanzee who's in his cage, takes a box, looks at the banana overhead, grabs a stick, and knocks the banana down. That's about as smart a chimpanzee as you'll get. But we put rovers on Mars. We've put men on the moon. We created the internet. I mean, we've created this amazing culture. Are we nothing but chimpanzees? No, we are radically different from chimpanzees. And so I would say along evolutionary time, I'd give a standard date around 50,000 years ago, and archaeologically we talk about behaviorally modern humans, whereby we start developing complex tools, art, and things like this. I think that's where the image of God becomes manifested and then it carries through in terms of all our amazing discoveries. And if you think in geological time from that time to today and think about how much discoveries we've done, I mean, this reflects that great, great creative impulse, which I think is an aspect of the image of God and being created in his likeness. So we've got this ancient science Scripture is written in ancient science on accommodation to the people he wanted to reach. Yep. Obviously, it wouldn't have made much sense for God to reveal himself to the ancient Israelites by referring to quantum theories of gravity or something uh -huh. like this. So he met them where they were at, just as he meets us where we're at. Yep. Uh, we're all on board with that. But for our last big question, uh, let's say, well, how do we then think about Adam? 
this idea of Adam and Eve, these first human beings in light of a recognition that the Bible does accommodate to the ancient science of the peoples God was intending to reveal himself to? That's a great question and you know that's the most challenging topic, the most volatile topic. I've had friends who've lost their job because of the Adam issue and the way I like uh, dealing with this issue is I, I think one of the best ways to teach is to introduce options um, and people then can wrestle with options. So let me let me share with you four options when it comes to this. Option number one, and I would never take this away from someone, if someone wants to say there's a hard and historical Adam and that Adam was created from the dust in Genesis 2-7, um, yeah, you have to leave that as an option. Um, some people need that and I'm not going to take that away from them. Option number two is to think that God created through an evolutionary process and then took two individuals, talk about Adam and Eve, they're pre-humans, gave them the image of God, moral culpability, and they all fell in sin. So evolution with an Adam and an Eve, which by the way, this basically is the Catholic Church's position. Option number three, God created through an evolutionary process, and instead of taking just one male and one female, took a group of males, a group of females, so in other words, I'm sort of talking many Adams and many Eves, given those spiritual characteristics, moral culpability, they all fall short of the glory of God, and they all sin. And then finally, option number four is to sort of look at this wonderful account in the garden, Genesis 2 and 3, and to think about Jesus. When it comes to Jesus' teaching, a third of Jesus' teaching was through parables. And to think about Genesis 2 and 3 as sort of a parable with some allegorical features. And the way I like to sort of present this to my students, my Christian students in particular, say, look, let's for a second suspend the, the belief you have in your mind of Genesis 2 and 3. Let's say Genesis 2 and 3 never existed. Let's just try to clear that from our minds. And let's assume you found a document, and a document with the following. A mystical tree that imparts knowledge of good and evil. Another mystical tree that imparts eternal life. A guy named Adam, which is a play on the word Adama in Hebrew meaning dirt. So it's earth and earthling. A woman named Hawa means life. Sounds pretty allegorical and archetypal. Um, then you find in this, this account you've discovered a fast-talking snake. And in this account you also find cherubim. And of course when it comes to cherubim we think they're chubby little angels. No, cherubim are actually composite creatures like the sphinx in Egypt where you have the head of a human, the body of a lion, and the wings of an eagle. Okay, so you have all these features. Well, the first thing you'd say is is this hard and fast history? I don't think many people would do that. Instead, they sort of say, well, this strikes me more like a story, more like an allegory to get across spiritual truths. So when it comes to option number four, is simply to say that the Bible doesn't reveal how humans came about, but more importantly, the Bible reveals who exactly we are. 
And if we can't see ourselves as Adam and Eve in that account, then you'd keep reading it until you see it. And I think there's an, a, a spectacular lesson to be learned from all this. And I, this is the deep Holy Spirit-inspired inerrant truth. God gives us this amazing life. He gives us some commandments. And what do we do? We don't listen to him. We break God's word. And in particular, the garden account, God goes up to Eve and says, you know, what have you done here? Do you remember what Eve does? He, she blames the snake. Instead of being accountable for her sin and breaking God's word and God's commands, she blames the snake, but it gets even more delicious with Adam. God goes up to Adam. The Lord God goes up to Adam and says, what have you done? And do you remember what Adam does? Oh, it's just, it's just unbelievable. He blames Eve for giving him the fruit, and then after that blames God for putting Eve in the garden with him. In other words, Adam is not dealing, is not going to be accountable for his own sin. He's not going to blame Eve. He's going to blame God in the end. Now, when I see that spiritual dynamic, I see that in myself. I see that in all human people. We sin. We go so far as to try to rationalize and justify it, blame other people, and not only that, we blame God. If that doesn't describe who we are, I don't know what does. So I think... I think this fourth model has got a lot to be said for it. Instead of going to Scripture for how humans come about, we go to Scripture to find out who exactly we are, and we fall short of God's glory, and we're all sinners. That does invite a specialized term in academic discourse, and that's myth. And, uh -huh. and myth, here the problem is, just as with theory, there are these perpetual misunderstandings of what theory is. So with myth, people at a popular level, think just myth means, well, it didn't happen or it's <coughs> false or something, rather than in the technical sense to understand myth as a narrative that has universal import, that un unveils universal dimensions of human experience. In this case, to understand this story as a key that unlocks some deep aspects of human nature, of the corruption of human nature, of our penchant to yep. find blame others, uh, and and when we get so focused on trying to measure up this text to a particular understanding of science of the day, and we fail to recognize what you've just quite eloquently done, which is how these texts exegete or unpack and inform for us the human condition and the human predicament, we've really missed some of the, the key dimensions of truth that these texts have to give to us. Okay. Everything you say, I resonate with 110%, but you sort of saw me when you used the M word, my eyes lit up. That word makes me very queasy. Now, as academic to academic, to call these opening chapters creation myth, it's exactly the literary genre. My problem with the word myth is it carries so darn much negative baggage. And by saying it's a myth, it means it's unimportant. Let's, and I rarely use that term. I explain it once to my students and I say, I just don't like it because it's got too much baggage. But if you want to call Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as Holy Spirit inspired creation myths, that's exactly what they are using the correct literary genres. The term I like to use that doesn't carry as much baggage is simply to call it an ancient 
account of origins. So it's ancient, has ancient categories. It's an account. It explains origins. That's what all creation accounts do. And of course, it deals with origins. It asks questions like, where do the stars come from? Where's the sun come from? Where do animals come from? The big question, where do we come from as humans? Where do you know, uh, other, other nations come from? And that's exactly what's going on in these opening chapters of the Word of God. So I'm, I'm with you, but I'm, I'm really cautious with the M word because, you know, think about what Paul had to say. You know, the people will turn aside from the truth and listen to cleverly constructed myths. And, of course, that is the Greek term mythos. And you can see that someone would, a Christian, come back to me saying, you believe in myth, but Paul says don't believe in myths. I mean, Paul is not using it in the literary genre sense, the professional literary sense that you're using it. So I'm, I'm, I think you said it as, as clearly as anyone could said it way, the way you describe this. And I, I would totally agree with you, but I would make the one caution. Um, I, let's say I'm invited to a church. I, unless someone asks the question, I would stay away from that term. It's just too loaded. Mm -hmm. But that's my, my spin on it. Well, in, in closing, I will say that you took another term, which has a lot of baggage, inerrancy. Yes. And you baptized that term for <laughs> your yeah. own purposes yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to imbue Scripture with authority, but somewhat different than how some fundamentalists certainly would use the term. But it does come back to the key issue of hermeneutics yes. or proper interpretation. You can confess scriptural authority and inspiration and inerrancy till the cows come home. But if you're misreading that text, uh, it's <laughs> you could do a lot of damage. And, and I appreciate yeah. that you're really challenging us to, to read with our minds open both to the book of God's works and the book of his words and understand that the one can illumine the interpretation and application of the other. So thank you, thank you. for sharing this time with us. Spot on. I really enjoyed this. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this episode of the Tentative Apologist podcast. For more episodes of the podcast, you can visit us online at randallrouser.com.